All right, well, it's so good to be with you guys, and I'm excited about today, but before we jump into the message, I want to give a quick shout-out to our campuses. We have family at Stone Canyon and Vertigris tuning in right now, so if you guys here at North Garnett Wood, would you put your hands together and welcome them into our family room here today? And this week, we're in the second sermon of our new series, The DNA of a Dangerous Church. And if you missed last Sunday, I encourage you to get online or go to our church app and watch the sermon from last week. Because last Sunday, we launched a new vision, a new mission statement for our church. And we want you to be on board with that because we're excited about what God has in store for us. Now, our new mission statement, it's simple, it's easy to recall, it's only five words, it's two statements, and we believe it's what life is all about, and it's what Jesus wants his church to be all about. And it's simply this, love Jesus, love like Jesus. Love Jesus, love like Jesus. And last week we talked about how so many churches have a tendency to complicate the mission that Jesus intended to be so simple. And we don't want to do that here. See, that happens when churches start to replace what's most important to Jesus with things that aren't important to him at all. And the larger a church gets and the older a church becomes, the easier it is to get more distracted and to become complacent. And so we want to follow the example of Jesus in Matthew chapter 22. When someone asked him, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? What is most important to, to God? And Jesus responded in Matthew 22, verse 37, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. For all the law, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus says, you want to know what's most important to God? You want to know what really matters to him? This is it. Love him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love him with your entire being. And love your neighbor as yourself. Love people as he has loved you. That's what's most important. And if you're not doing those two things, then it doesn't matter what else you're doing. You're missing what's most important. Because all of God's commands, his entire plan, hangs on those two statements. Love God, love people. And so here at First Church, we want to keep the main thing the main thing. And that's why we landed on this mission statement, love Jesus, love like Jesus. Because we want what God considers to be most important, to be what we are known for as a church. It's not just a slogan. It's who we are. And we believe it's who God wants us to continue to become. We also believe it's what life is all about. Because we believe... That First Church is here at this point in history to unleash a revolution of God's love on the 918 and beyond. Jesus says in John 13, verse 34, Your love for one another will prove to the world, catch that phrase, prove to the world that you are my disciples. See, the quality and the quantity of our love will be the clearest indicator to the watching world that we are who we say we are. Followers of Jesus. The quality and the quantity of our love for God and our love for people will prove to the world that we are followers of Jesus. So that's why we landed on love Jesus, love like Jesus. Because it clarifies and it simplifies what we're supposed to be all about as a church. But even though love Jesus, love like Jesus is simple to say and easy to remember, let's be honest, it's not always easy to live out. Because it's one thing to know where you want to go. It's a whole other thing to have what it takes to get there. That's a lesson I had to learn the hard way in life. 
I hadn't been in preaching ministry that long when I was asked to do a funeral for a prominent lady in our church who passed away. So I did the funeral, and everything went fine during the main service, and I got into my car to drive to the graveside service. When I got into my car, started up, and I noticed that my gas light came on. I didn't realize I was that low on gas, but it wasn't that big of a deal because the cemetery was less than a mile down the road. I knew I had enough gas to get there, and so I waited for everybody else to get in their cars, and we started the procession line, and we took off to the cemetery. And so I'm behind the hearse, and I'm following along, and all of a sudden the hearse doesn't turn into the cemetery. The main cemetery in town, it just kept going. And I thought, well, she must be being buried in a family cemetery somewhere local, and we just kept driving and driving and driving, and I started to panic and panic and panic. And so I'm going through my papers that I have in my passenger seat. I find a copy of the obituary, and I'm scanning it, and I learned that this woman was going to be buried some two hours away in another county. And I knew I did not have enough gas to get there. And so I just had to make a hard decision, had to make a hard call. I'm going to have to pull off on the way there and get gas. It's just going to have to happen. I didn't want to do that, but you know, funeral processions, normally they go a little bit slower than you would typically drive. So I thought, I'll pull off real fast at a gas station, get gas, and then get back in line. And the thing is, I'm the one that's going to be leading the graveside service. So even if I'm a little late, they'll wait on me. They'll wait for me to get there. And so that's what I did. We're driving driving on the highway, I see a gas station right off, and, right off the road, and I turned my blinker on, and I went to the gas station to get gas. And that's when things went from bad to worse, because I'm not sure if they do that around here, but back home, they always put the preacher right up front, like behind the hearse. So when I turned my blinker on and turned off, every car behind me followed. The entire family and friends who were going to the graveside went with me to this gas station. And so I got out of my car because I had to fill up with gas. I'm there to pump and all these cars are coming in behind me. And all of a sudden I hear my name. And I'm hearing a woman say, Chad, Chad, Chad. And she sounds frantic. And I turn, look over my shoulder. It's the daughter of the woman who had passed away. Her name was Ann. And you've got to know Ann. Ann's kind of one of these uh, pit bull type ladies. I mean, she just says what she thinks. And she always looks mad. You know, you know people like that. And she was making a beeline in my direction. And she was yelling out my name. Chad, Chad, Chad. And so I just turned around and I said, uh, yes. And she looked at me and she goes, thank goodness you stopped. I was dying to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and about that time, other car doors opened up. People got out of their cars. They went inside. They bought fountain drinks and snacks and all sorts of stuff. I just waited on them to get all, everything they needed. They came back out. I said, you guys ready to go? Yeah, we're ready to go. I said, let's go. And so they follow me back on the road. Now, the only problem with that is that the hearse who was being, uh, that, was, that, the, uh, that the funeral home director was driving, he kept on going. The hearse kept on going. He didn't realize why we had stopped, so he called me while we were stopped at the gas station, and he said, Chad, where are you? What happened? And he, you could tell he was mad. He was upset because he told the people at the cemetery we'd be there by a certain time. So he was upset. He said, Chad, what happened? And I said the, I said the truth. I told him the truth. I said, well, you know Ann, you know how she is. She had to stop and go to the bathroom. <laughs> well, I told him a partial truth, but I eventually told him the rest of the story later on. It's one thing to know where you need to go. It's a whole other thing to have what it takes to get there. And that's true for the church as well. It's one thing to say, hey, we're going to be a church that loves Jesus and loves like Jesus. But it's a whole other thing to actually do it to actually live that out. 
And that's why last week we introduced four expressions that will help us as a church unleash a revolution of God's love on the 918 and beyond. And these four expressions, they're based upon the four primary relationships that are emphasized in Scripture. So we want to be a church that grows in our love, first of all, for God. And, we, and we're stating this with, uh, with these words. We want to be a church that relentlessly pursues God. That's our first expression. Second, we want to be a church that grows in our love for our families. So our second expression says, we sacrificially serve our families as a church. Third, we want to be a church that grows in our love for the next generation, for our kids, for our grandkids, for our students and children here at First Church. So our third expression is, we intentionally invest in the next generation. And then fourth, we want to be a church that loves our neighbors. We want to generously extend hope to everyone. And by everyone, I mean everyone, because the gospel is for everyone, the church is for everyone, Jesus is for everyone. And we believe that when we put these expressions into practice, when these expressions become our DNA as a church, that we will be a dangerous church, meaning we will pose a very real and powerful threat to the status quo of our culture. We will be a church that's known for what the first church in the first century was known for, turning the world upside down, as it says in Acts 17, verse 6. We will be a church that's known for turning the world upside down, turning our culture upside down with the transforming love of Christ. And so over the next four weeks, what I'm going to be doing, including today, is unpacking these four expressions to explain why they're so important, why they need to be part of our DNA. And so today we're going to look at the first expression, which says, we want to be a church that relentlessly pursues God. And that's where our vision to love Jesus and love like Jesus starts. That's where our vision to unleash a revolution of love on the 918 and beyond starts. Because here's the thing. Before we can change the world with the love of Jesus, we have to first let the love of Jesus change us. And the more we seek God and the more we grow in our relationship with Him, the more we'll experience His incredible love and be changed by it. The Bible says in James 4 verse 8, Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Now, what's interesting is James is writing that to people who are already following Jesus, to people who have already accepted Jesus as Lord, already part of his church, and yet he instructs them, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Why does he say that to people who are already following Jesus? Because James knows and the Bible is teaching that seeking God is not a one-time moment. It's not a one-time event when we first accept and first baptize into Christ. But seeking God is a lifelong journey. It's something that we do every single day of our lives. Seeking God is what we are called to do day in and day out. We are to be pursuing Him always, growing in our relationship with Him. Next month, May the 24th, Allison and I will have been married for 10 years. It'll be our 10-year anniversary, and we're excited about that. That's kind of cool. By the way, May 24th is also my birthday, hint, hint. Yes, I, we were married on my birthday, and I will never forget our anniversary date uh, because of that. But May 24th, we uh, will have been married 10 years, and we're excited to celebrate that. And we dated for six years prior to that. We were high school sweethearts and dated all through college and got married after college. And so we've known each other now for... 16 plus years and one thing that we will both tell you is we've never stopped pursuing one another 
We want to know each other on a deeper level all the time. We want to fall more in love with each other all the time. And sometimes that takes work. You guys have been married for, long, uh, for many years. You guys know that. It takes work. But we never want to stop pursuing one another. We never want to stop dating one another. We never want to stop flirting with one another. We just want to keep falling more and more in love with one another. The other day, we were sitting in a waiting room. There were a bunch of people there, and it was loud. And it was hard to hear each other. So we're both on our phones just kind of uh, trying to pass the time. And so I sent her a text message. I'm sitting right beside her, but I sent her a text message, Allison, and I, I sent her this message. I said, man, your husband is a lucky man. Now, I thought that was sweet, and I thought she would respond like all or something like that, but after I said, your husband is a lucky man, she texted me back, and she said, my husband is a dork, and I thought... <laughs> Come on now. But you know, I could have got offended by that, but I know her well enough. I get her sense of humor, and we can joke back and forth because our love is much deeper than that. If, I, if we had just started dating or something, I might have been crushed by that comment, not knowing her sense of humor. But uh, that's, that's not at all what I thought. And we're continuing to grow to know each other even more. Our relationship is becoming more and more meaningful every day. And I think that's what God wants from us as well. He wants the type of relationship with us where we never stop pursuing him, seeking him, getting to know him. And here's the thing. He has provided us with a resource to help us grow in our relationship with him. You guys already know what this resource is, the Bible. I know what you might be thinking, Chad, we've heard this before. If you've been in church at all in the past, you've probably heard somebody say, you need to read your Bible, so you're going to give us another message about why we need to read the Bible. Well, kind of. And I know this may sound elementary and simple and basic, but isn't that what this vision is all about? Getting back to what's most important, because sometimes we forget the basic stuff, the foundational stuff that we need to be standing upon. Because every single year, research shows that regular Bible reading among Christians in our country is in decline. And it's not just in decline, it is massively in decline. So here at First Church, what we want to do is we want to elevate the value of studying and reading God's Word. And that's why with this expression, we want to issue a challenge. With all of our expressions, we're issuing a challenge, and we want to issue this challenge. We want 100% of our First Church family to read their Bibles daily. Now, I know that that is a big goal. I know it's a lofty goal to expect 100% of our church family, our church members, to be in God's Word daily. But we want to set the bar high because we believe the study of God's Word is so important. We want 100% of our church family to form the habit of being in God's Word on a daily basis. And here's why. You've probably heard the old, old adage, you are what you eat. I'm sure we've all heard that before. There's a comedian by the name of Anita Renfro, and she's a stand-up comedian, and I heard her do a routine several years ago when she talked about going to the doctor's office one day, and the doctor told her what she expected she would hear. The doctor said, you need to lose a few pounds. And the doctor even used the phrase, you know, you are what you eat. And so Anita Renfro said, I decided at that moment exactly what I was going to do. I was going to go find a skinny girl, and I was going to eat her. You are what you eat. <laughs> Now, I know that she was joking, but I think she also knows there's some truth to that old adage, and we know that too. What we physically consume affects our physical health, and the same is true for our spiritual health. What we spiritually consume, what we spiritually take in, affects our spiritual health. What we consume shapes us. The movies we go see the TV shows we watch, the books we read, the magazines we look at, the music we listen to, the websites we visit, the conversations we have, all shape us. Like the physical food we eat, what we fill our hearts and minds with will affect our mood, 
our attitude, our emotional well-being, our sleep patterns, how we, re- how we relate to others, and our overall contentment level in life. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. See, the Bible is telling us that spiritual growth occurs when we have a regular and consistent diet of God's word. That's why Jeremiah in Jeremiah 15, 16 says to God, When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. Job says something similar. And you remember everything Job went through. And he says in Job 23, 12, I have not departed from the commands of his lips, God's lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. When you jump over to the New Testament, Peter describes the Word of God as milk for the soul. Jesus uh, compares the Word of God to bread, bread that nourishes our bodies. Hebrews describes it as meat or solid food that sustains us. God's Word nourishes and sustains our spiritual lives. And just as a human being cannot survive without physical food, a church cannot spiritually survive without the Bible. That's why at First Church, we want to elevate the reading of God's Word. In Psalm 1, verse 2, um, the psalmist talks about a man who pursues God successfully. And listen to what it says. It says, his delight, this man who pursues God successfully, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on God's law, he meditates day and night. Day and night. I love that word meditates. It's the Hebrew word haggah. If you would say Haggah with me on the count of three, one, two, three, Haggah. It's a fun Hebrew word, and it describes how an animal tenaciously gnaws on a bone or gnaws on its prey. I've got a picture of a lion gnawing on a bone. That's the imagery that surrounds Haggah. I mean, have you ever been around somebody who's just really enjoying their food a lot, and as they devour their food, you know, they start to make noises, you know, grunts and all that kind of stuff because it's just so good? I had supper this past Thursday evening with our elders. We had a meeting at a restaurant, and we went to a barbecue place. Let me tell you something. I saw a lot of Haggah eating that night, okay? Uh, they were excited about their food, especially when, when the dessert came. They were, yeah, definitely. But that's, you guys get what I'm saying. And that's why we want to be a church that relentlessly pursues God. Because we want to devour it. We want to groan for it. We want a deep hunger within us for God's Word. And I believe that's the first sign of a healthy and a vibrant church. And I'm convinced that's why in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes to a young preacher named Timothy, and he tells him, elevate God's Word. Elevate God's Word in your life, and elevate God's Word in the church that you serve, the church at Ephesus. So if you have your Bible, 2 Timothy 3 is where I want to focus on right now. And we're going to look at what Paul says to Timothy. Now, while you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of background. Because uh, Paul is writing this second letter to Timothy during a time of great persecution. The church is under attack. In fact, Paul is writing this letter from a Roman dungeon cell. And so he's writing to Timothy, and Timothy is discouraged. His church is discouraged. Some people are abandoning the faith. And he tells Timothy, listen, you still have a mission to carry out. God has still entrusted you with a work to accomplish. And the way that you're going to be able to power through, the way that you're going to be able to still do what God is calling you to do, even with all this pressure and persecution surrounding you, is by staying in God's Word. Because God's Word will equip you and it will empower you to carry out the mission that He has given you. And so he writes to Timothy, and I want you to pay careful attention to what he says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Paul says, in fact, 
Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, Paul's right there. They're experiencing severe persecution, and Paul says, you should expect this. You know why? Because when you push against the powers of darkness that reign in this world, those powers will push back. Now, the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world, but still, we're going to get pushback. When you try to upset the status quo of culture with the love of Jesus, you're going to get pushback. And so he says, if you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, do you want to live God's will for your life? You're going to experience persecution. You should just accept it. And then he says in verse 13, while evil men and imposters will grow from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you have learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What Paul is doing in this little section of his letter to, to, his letter to Timothy is saying, here are some clear and compelling reasons why you, Timothy, need to elevate God's word in your life and why you need to elevate its importance in the church. And I think Paul is giving us these same reasons today. So let me share with you these clear and compelling reasons for elevating God's word in our own lives and in the life of our church. And the first reason Paul gives is this. The Bible is from God. Now let that sink in just for a moment. The Bible is from God. 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, All Scripture is God-breathed. Notice what Paul says. He doesn't say some Scripture is God-breathed or part of the Scripture is God-breathed. He says all Scripture is. All Scripture is God-breathed. And that word God-breathed is a unique compound Greek word, theonoustos, and it literally means the life breath of God. Now, there's an equivalent Hebrew word. In the book of Genesis, when it talks about God breathing life into the human race, you know, God breathed life into us, that's the equivalent Hebrew word, that Paul, and Paul uses the Greek word, life breath, breathing into. What Paul here is trying to let us know is just as God breathed life into us, into the human race, so that we could become living beings, God has breathed life into his word. He's breathed life into the pages of scripture so that when we open it up, we are experiencing God's very life breath. Now, that's kind of cool. And that's why Hebrews 6, 12, I mean, sorry, Hebrews 4, 12 says that the word of God is living and active. You see, the point of Bible study, the aim of Bible study is to have a living encounter with the living God. When we study the scripture, we shouldn't see it as just instructions and general teachings, though it does contain instruction and teachings. We should approach the Bible as the intersection between heaven and earth. Because when we open up the pages of scripture and our hearts are right and our minds are right and we study it and we consume it, God will breathe life into us. We will experience his presence. It's a gift that he has given us to experience his presence on earth. And I wonder when we open up our Bibles, if we even have any idea what we hold in our hands. When we put our Bibles back on a shelf or on our coffee table or wherever, do we have any idea what we really possess? That what we're holding is the very life breath of our Creator, our God. Some time ago, I was at a used bookstore and they had a clearance section, and on their clearance 
rack was this. It doesn't look like much. It kind of looks like a pew Bible, and I think that's probably what it was intended to be. It's just a plain, hardback copy of the New International Version of Scripture. It's a Bible. And when I opened it up, it looked as if it had hardly been used. In fact, the first time I opened it, the spine cracked. That's how new it was. And there's a sticker on the cover of this Bible that said, Clearance, $2. And so I bought it. I like to buy Bibles when they're pretty affordable because I give them away to people. And so I saw $2. It's a good, brand-new Bible, and I bought it. And I bought it with some other books that day, and I got home later that day, and I was going through the sack of books that I had bought and found this Bible. I pulled it out, I started to just thumb through the pages, look at it, and I got to 2 Timothy 3.16 where it says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And when I read those words, something hit me. It hit me what I had just done. It hit me that I was holding in my hands not just another book that I had found on clearance, but I was holding in my hands the very word of God. I was holding in my hands the very life breath of our creator. I was holding in my hands the voice of the Almighty. I was holding in my hands God's plan to redeem his creation. I was holding in my hands what the Bible refers to as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path in the midst of this dark and dying world. I was holding in my hands the words of our Savior. And Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. I was holding in my hands the living, the breathing, eternal, enduring, powerful word of God. And I bought it on a clearance rack for $2. I wonder if we take God's word for granted. I wonder if we even realize what we possess. Paul says the Bible is from God. Realize what you've been given. The second thing that Paul says is that the Bible strengthens our faith in Jesus. This is the second reason why we should elevate the reading and the studying of God's word because the Bible strengthens our faith in Jesus. If you jump back into verse 15 of 2 Timothy 3, Paul writes, How from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. See, the Bible, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible points to Him. It introduces us to Him. It shows us our need for Him in our lives. And the only way that you will really come to know Him, have a deep, meaningful relationship with Him and appreciate Him for who He is and what He's done is by becoming familiar with the 66 books that reveal Him to the world. Uh, author Norman Geisler breaks down the, the Bible, the different sections of the Bible in this way, and I really like what he says. He says, the books of law are the foundation for Christ. The books of history are the preparation for Christ. The books of poetry are the aspiration for Christ. The prophets are the expectation for Christ. The gospels are the incarnation of Christ. The book of Acts is the proclamation of Christ. The epistles are the interpretation of Christ. And Revelation is the consummation of Christ. The entire Bible is pointing to Jesus, introducing us to Jesus. It's allowing us to grow up in Him so that our faith is strengthened by Him. And it's showing us our need for Him in our daily lives. Now, you don't have to understand the entire Bible in order to have faith in Jesus. I'm not saying that. 
But the more you understand it, the closer you'll get to him, the stronger your faith in him will become. And as you grow in your relationship with him, you will get to know him better and you'll fall in love with him more. And the more you fall in love with him, the more your life will get better because you'll learn to trust him and you'll learn never to underestimate him no matter what you face. The Bible strengthens our faith in Jesus. But then the third reason that Paul says that we should elevate the reading and the study of God's word is because the Bible is for our good. It really is. Sometimes people see the Bible as a hindrance. You don't like it. What it says, it holds us back from really living or doing what we want to do. But Paul says the Bible is for our good. Look again at verses 16 through 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible shows us that we were created for more than the cookie-cutter existence that this culture offers us. It shows us that we have a place in God's grand narrative, and God's story, that we have a greater purpose than the purpose we've settled for in the culture we're living in, that God has a place for us in his redemptive plan. It shows us that we, we are able to enter into a new chapter, that God is writing a new story for us. The problem is we've lived so long settling for a lesser story than God originally designed us to live that we need to be re rewired. Because we're so used to settling for the lesser story of this world that we miss God has something greater planned out for us. And that's what the Bible does. The Bible rewires us. It rewires our hearts. It rewires our thinking. It rewires how we, how we live. It shows us how to really live. And it prepares us for life now and life in eternity. See, the ultimate goal of Bible study isn't memorization. The ultimate goal of Bible study is transformation. Now, there's nothing wrong with memorizing Scripture. Don't misunderstand me. But the ultimate goal is not memorization. The ultimate goal is not just to retain a bunch of facts from Scripture. The ultimate goal of Bible study is transformation. And that's why Paul says that the Bible will teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us. It teaches us in that it shows us what's right. It rebukes us in that it shows us what's not right. It corrects us in that it shows us how to get right. And it trains us in that it shows us how to stay right. Bible study is all about transformation. It shapes us and it molds us into a people that reflect the character and the nature of our God. You want to know how to love like Jesus? Let the Bible transform you and change you to be more like him. When my papa passed away, my dad's dad, the one thing that I wanted from him was his Bible. Now, I got some other things, but I really wanted his Bible. And I... And I was able to get that because I was the only preacher in the family and nobody really argued. They said, yeah, it's right for Chad to have it. So I brought it with me on stage today. I brought three Bibles this morning. You know it's going to be a good sermon when the preacher brings three Bibles. I have my preaching Bible, my $2 Bible, and now my papa's Bible. I have fond memories of walking into my papa's living room and him having this Bible open and reading it. He kept it in a drawer right beside his easy chair. And he'd sit in that easy chair and he'd watch westerns and he'd watch baseball. But at least once a day, he'd turn off the TV and he'd pull out his Bible. He'd start to read God's Word. And I was talking to him one day and I remember him saying, Chad, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone whose life isn't. And that meant something coming from my papa. Because though my papa grew up in church, kind of, as a kid, 
He wasn't real faithful to Jesus. In fact, he lived a pretty wild life as a teenager. I've heard stories of him doing moonshine runs and all sorts of stuff when he was a teenager. Remember, we're from Kentucky, so I got to keep that in context. But he met my mamaw, and he got serious about his faith. He got serious about following Jesus, and Jesus changed him. He became faithful to the church he attended, ended up becoming an elder of that church. He raised all three of his boys, one of which is my dad, in church. And to this day, all three of those of his sons are faithful to their church serving their churches. All of their children are faithful in, in churches somewhere serving Christ. And out of that whole group, I became a preacher. Jesus changed my papa's life. And so when he passed away, I said, I'd really like to have his Bible. So one of my family members gave it to me, and when that family, family member handed it to me, he apologized. He said, Chad, I'm so sorry that the Bible's in such bad shape. If you look at it, the leather's coming apart. When you open it up, the pages are detached from the spine. There are pages that are just falling out of it. This family member apologized and said, I'm so sorry that the Bible's in such bad shape. And I said, no, 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 no. Because the Bible that's falling apart belongs to someone whose life isn't. The Bible is for our good. And I see the difference it made in my papal's life, and I've seen the difference it's made in so many people's lives. In my life, and you know stories as well, and you can probably tell about how it's made a difference in your life. It's not just a bunch of rules that hold us back. It's for our good because God knows what's best for us. He created us, and he knows what's best for us. And so Paul says you need to elevate the reading of God's word. And I believe as a church we need to do the same today. And as we implement our new vision for First Church over the next few months, we're going to intentionally elevate the importance of knowing and studying God's Word. So here are some things we're going to do over the next few months as a church. First of all, we plan to offer more small groups and classes that connect people around God's Word. I know some churches offer small groups and classes, and it's more of a social time, and there's nothing wrong with spending time socially with one another, with our brothers and sisters, but we want the point of these groups and these classes to be for transformation. We want people to gather around and connect to God's Word so that we foster an environment of spiritual growth. We're also going to be offering Bible reading plans for our church. So we're going to offer these Bible reading plans through our online app, and you can get to go on our website and get them. And if you don't have that technology, we'll have printed copies of those Bible reading plans. You can pick them up. But we want our church studying God's Word together. We're also going to attempt to all of our ministries and activities so that each of our ministries, all of our activities, foster an environment of spiritual growth because that's what it's all about. What good is it is if we have all the programs and activities in the world but spiritual growth never takes place? Let me let you know personally, my goal in preaching and teaching to you week in and week out that I don't plan on standing up here, if you can't tell, I don't plan on standing up here and giving you self-help advice or pop psychology or cotton candy fluff that just makes you feel good about yourself. That's not my intention. That's not my goal. I want to present God's Word in such a way that people are introduced to Jesus, that hearts are convicted, and that lives are changed by its truth. And our goal as a church is that by the end of the year 2019, this is 2018, it's going to take us a while to implement this vision strategy, but by the end of 2019, that our entire church, 
Every person who claims to be a member of First Church will be committed to the habit of being in God's word daily. We know that's a lofty goal. We know that's a huge goal. But that's how important we believe this is. So that's where we're going. But in the meantime, as we implement this vision strategy, I just want to challenge you. Find a time, find a place, find a plan to be in God's Word. Find a time. I've discovered there are two people that exist, two types of people. People who love mornings and those who hate the people who love mornings. There are two types of people. So if you're not a morning person, don't try to study your Bible in the morning. If you fall asleep when the sun goes down, don't try to study your Bible at night. Find the right time for you where you can study God's Word. Have a place because location is a habit trigger. Have a place where when you go to that chair or you go to that desk or you go to that room, that's your place to study God's Word. And have a plan. Now, there are outlines you can find online. We're going to be providing outlines in the near future here at First Church. You can go buy books at a Christian bookstore. There are you know, professional studies that you can follow. But when I say find a plan, what I mean is just have some type of structure to your study. Maybe all you need to do is just pick a book. You know, pick Matthew and read through it, or Acts, or pick one of uh, Paul's letters, or an Old Testament book like Genesis or Exodus. Pick a book and go through it, even if you just read a verse or two a day. Be in God's Word daily. Have, have a plan. Now, I know what you might be thinking. You know, Chad, that's a lot. To be in God's Word every single day, I mean, that's going to take a lot of time. I don't know if I can do it. Here's what I've discovered. People do what they want to do. People will find time for the things they love to do, always. And if you truly love Jesus, you're going to want to find time to be in his word and to get to know him on a deeper level. When I was a student at Bible college, the Ink and Blood exhibit came to the town where my college was. And if you haven't heard of it, the Ink and Blood exhibit is an exhibit that travels around the world. And they put on display ancient manuscripts of the, of the Bible. So they've got manuscripts of the Old Testament that are 2,000 plus years old. They've got manuscripts from the New Testament or partial manuscripts that date back to the second century. And it's really neat to see those documents and those artifacts. So we had this guy from the exhibit come to our chapel and speak, and he gave us all free tickets to go see the exhibit because we were Bible college students, so I got to go later on. But I'll never forget a story he told in chapel. He said that there have been different periods throughout history when it's been illegal for the average person to own a copy of God's Word. One of those time periods happened on and off during the 15th and 16th centuries because they started to print the Bible in the language of the common people, and those in authority didn't like it. They thought it would lead to a re revolution or a revolt or something, and so they didn't like it. And so there were times during the 15th and 16th centuries that if you were caught with a personal copy of God's Word, of the Bible, you were killed. You were martyred. Hundreds of people, if not thousands, were killed for this very reason, for simply owning a copy of the Bible. Their typical MO was to burn you at the stake, and they would burn your copy of the Bible along with you. But if they didn't have time to do that, what they would do is they would drag you out to, uh, to the center of the town where everybody could see you. And they would throw your copy of the Bible down on the ground. They would lay you on top of it, maybe your family members too. And they would then take a sword. I know this is gruesome. But they would take a sword and they would drive it through your back all the way down to all your family members until it hit that Bible. And blood would flow. Your spilt blood would flow over the pages of Scripture. And then they would take the sword out, knock the bodies over, pick up the blood-stained Bible, and they would then start to tear out the pages, throw them and scatter them everywhere as a sign to say, you get caught with one of these, you'll suffer the same fate. 
after the guy from the exhibit was telling us that story, he uncovered a framed piece of paper. Looks like an ancient piece of paper. He said, you know what this is? He said, this is a page dates back to the 15th century from one of Paul's letters in the New Testament. He said, you can't tell it now because it's faded over time, but we've done some tests on this page, and this page contains human DNA, human blood. But it doesn't just contain one family's blood. There are multiple, multiple families whose blood was spilt over this page. Because what would happen is that after the the authorities would scatter the pages and they would leave. The Christians would go and they would gather up the pages and they'd bind them back together. They may not have a complete Bible. They would bind back up what they could find just so that they could have part of God's word because they believed it was so important to their spiritual lives, so important to their mission, so important for the world. And apparently that page that was on display that I saw that night a lot of people had died over it. And after thinking back on that story and what Christians did throughout history just to have part of God's Word, and now we can find a copy of the Bible on a clearance rack for $2. Do we even realize what we possess? Do we even realize what we have? What we consume shapes us. And God has given us the Bible for our good. And we here at First Church want to be a church that loves Jesus and loves likes Jesus. And it starts by getting to know him through his word. We want to be a church that relentlessly pursues him. Because before we can change the world with the love of Jesus, we have to first be changed by the love of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for this day and this time we've had to open up your word. And Father, how we often take it for granted, and we shouldn't. It's a gift from you. You have revealed yourself to us through it. Father, may we have a hunger for it, a Haggah hunger, where we relentlessly pursue you and get to know you. Father, I just thank you so much for this church. And this is a new day for our church, and as we march into this new day, Father, May we just seek you more and more every single day. May your word be elevated as it leads us and it guides us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.